Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Autumn Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is Getting Serious About Defense Policy, and it was recorded on October 19th, 2015. So I realized it wasn't a high enough degree of difficulty to talk right after lunch, so I'm going to talk about the most boring subject in the free world, defense spending. Um, but it's actually really important, and the argument I'm going to make to you all is that we, uh, while we probably do need more money in the defense budget right now, uh, that is the least of our concerns, and that, in fact, we have bigger problems in defense, and we are not likely to solve those problems until we get an agreement on entitlement reform, both because that will be necessary for getting the resources for a better defense policy, but also because the main problems in defense policy are actually governance problems, not spending problems. Uh, and uh, the good news is that the United States enjoys the luxury of a wide margin of error in defense policy, but the bad news is that we're playing a very strong hand inexcusably weakly. Um, and that we have, over the last, say, 15 years, um, incurred enormous reputational damage, and that that is being aggravated by the gap between our outsized rhetoric and our very stingy actions. Jeffrey Blaney, the great historian of conflict, wrote that wars are caused by states who believe they, that believe they can win, right? So it's not... Defense, it's not arms buildups, it's not uh, cultural factors, it's not one power growing stronger than another. Right? The simple answer to, to when wars start is because somebody thinks they can win. Um, and I think right now we are actually at more risk than in any time in my professional life for others believing that they could win wars against us. Um, and that is less a function of our military, which is admittedly extraordinarily good at its job, than it is out of a belief that we will not act in our own interests. And they're probably right. Uh, the Economist last week uh, said, and I quote, rarely has an American president so abjectly abandoned his global responsibility. Um, so, uh, we need to reestablish deterrence if we are to push the risk of war further out from us. And the way that we do that uh, is to start with by reestablishing our word. It used to be the case that people believed that the United States was capable of great diabolical creativity. I put up a quote from Nasser, the, the leader of Egypt in the 1950s, um, which is, of course, you can see, it says, the genius of you Americans is that you make no clear-cut stupid moves. You only make complicated stupid moves, which leaves us to wonder at the possibility that there may be something to them we are missing, <laughs> right? Think about the days when any time a govern progressive government was overthrown, people believed the CIA did it, right? That's not happening anymore. 
Um, all of you are seasoned travelers, so I know you are having similar experiences abroad. People are actually shocked by how badly we are running the international order of our own creation. Um, and I'm going to talk today about one important piece of this problem, which is defense policy. I'm going to start by giving you my top 13 signs that we are not serious about this undertaking. First, we are establishing time ends to our participation in wars, right? We are going to stop the Iraq war in 2010. Of course, the war didn't stop. We just stopped fighting it. Under-resourcing our wars, right? Having grand objectives like regime change and democratization that we then do not uh, commit either the political or the military or the economic resources. Third, the president avoiding the subject, right? Two days ago, the President Obama uh, decided to extend American military involvement in Afghanistan. Did any of you hear him say that? No, it got leaked into the newspaper. So the president isn't shaping public attitudes and reactions about these things. Fourth, sequestration the absolute worst possible way to cut defense spending. And we are doing it because we can't cut federal spending any other way. Fifth, the congressional refusal to cut military pay and benefits. I know this will shock some of you uh, because there is a general impression that our military needs to be paid more and have better benefits, and that impression is wrong. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Sixth. President Obama at the United Nations saying, after the Syrian government has killed 250,000 people, a million 200,000 Syrian refugees have left the country, 11 million Syrian people are internal refugees. President Obama proudly saying, America will always do its part. Um, sixth, uh, Secretary Clinton in the Democratic debate the other night. Uh, describing America's intervention in Libya as smart power at its best. Uh, seventh, I'm losing track of my numbers. Uh, President Obama has threatened to veto the National Defense Authorization Act this year on the counsel of his Secretary of Defense because even though it allocated him more money than he requested, he decided that this was the year that he ought to argue about how Congress assigns that money. Uh, eighth, the Syria red line, right? Ninth, that we have been fighting the Islamic State for 18 months and haven't won, and fighting in Afghanistan for 15 years and haven't won, against militaries that uh, are ragtag groups. Uh, ninth, tenth, General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying two years ago that the president's strategy would be unexecutable if Congress cut even one dollar out of the budget. Congress cut 48 million dollars, excuse me, billion dollars out of that budget and we still have the same strategy. Eleventh, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were unanimous in their testimony to Congress that it would be disastrous to American defense policy for sequestration to go into effect, and that many of the social issues that Congress has taken up 
with greater fervor than they have taken up the warfighting function of our military. Um, all of the chiefs testified on those issues, and it didn't change a single vote in Congress. And lastly, you probably read in this morning's newspaper that the intelligence agencies announced themselves surprised by Vladimir Putin's intervention in Syria. Right? So those are 13 reasons, just small examples on the margin of what illustrating why other countries, other organizations, other people don't think we are serious about the undertaking of defending our interests and defending our country. Um, and we're suffering from the man on the moon problem, which is that everybody knows we can do this. We're just not doing it. Right? Which is worse, actually. It's more provocative. Um, and while this is especially egregious right now, it's not actually a new problem. The United States is typically, funny as it sounds, we're typically actually not very good at strategy because we have such a wide margin of error. Right? The, the people who are good strategists are actually people who live very close to the margin of failure because we can afford to lose most of our wars. They're not existential for us. Um, and others don't have that luxury. But we're also just really managing the defense enterprise badly these days. Um, there's a venerable Republican trope that we need more money in defense, right? Every single Republican candidate, with a possible exception of Rand Paul, um, although his votes on this are more scattershot than his rhetoric would suggest, so all of them say we need more money um, in defense policy. None of them say where that money is going to come from. And none of them have a strategy for persuading a Congress to actually enact that. And I am pleading with you to actually demand that of the candidates that you support in the coming election cycle. Um, the uh, money is, in fact, even though it's not the driver of the problem, it's a good illustration of, of what we are not serious about. Uh, this is a chart that shows American government spending from 1987 as projected through 2035. You will, of course, have seen uh, newspaper reports in the last couple of days about breathlessly reporting that the deficit is radically diminished. What they don't point out is that the obligations our government has undertaken principally for the health care and retirement of Americans are increasing enormously. Uh, my fellow traveler, uh, Admiral Gary Ruffhead, is talking tonight over dinner. And, and he is the most knowledgeable person on the way that we need to reform the defense enterprise. But I'm going to go over one slightly. Um, so to gun you up for questions, you can ask him tonight. <laughs> so um, uh, I, sh I should also probably confess that uh, Gary and I wrote an alternative defense budget a few years ago that took the sequestration top line and argued that if you gave DOD managerial latitude, we could actually have a better defense establishment, defense policy, defense budget, uh, better forces than we have now. So uh, 
And you know, spending has been reduced 26% in President Obama's tenure, but uh, only 13.5% of that is in the base budget. Everything else is in the war spending. Congress, as you know, creates two different categories of defense spending. There is the uh, recruiting, training, and equipping of the force, and then there's its use. And they keep those two separate budgets for constitutional reasons, because they understandably want the right to actually turn off the money if they don't agree with what the president's doing. Um, and between the congressional budget caps on spending in the 2010 Budget Control Act, the president's budget requests, which were always in excess of those caps, and so triggered sequestration, um, Defense spending is down a trillion dollars from what Bob Gates projected it would be going to. And, you know, a trillion, you start to get to real money, um, even in defense spending. But that will only be 12% of federal government spending when President Obama leaves office. Entitlements will be 48% of spending. And the reason you cannot get good defense policy until we get a deal that brings entitlement spending onto sustainable fit footing is that it will continue to crowd out discretionary spending and it will hurt defense discretionary spending more than most because DOD is an organization that takes seriously long-term planning and has to buy long-term um, equipment. So the, uh, I, I will close off this tirade on spending by quoting my friend Jim Mattis, also a Hoover Fellow here, who says that our enemies could not do more damage to us than sequestration is doing. Right? This is a terrible way to do defense policy because even though the cuts are not that much, it prevents DOD from entering into contracts it doesn't allow the long-term planning and programming for the use of their money. And I see my colleague Tim Kaine sitting in the audience, and you guys ought to tug his lapel about this one, because he has the most interesting and important uh, personnel reform recommendations of anybody going on. Uh, so what, what is this costing us, this bad defense policy? Well, um, we are... We used to be dominant in our advantages in at least four areas that I think we no longer are. One is technological innovation. It is so hard to work with the Defense Department because of the legislative and security requirements that go on with it that many cutting-edge companies don't want to do defense business and can't be, uh, can't be lured into doing defense business. Uh, the second area of advantage that we're losing is reliable communications. Think cyber. Um, we are actually having to teach sailors how to plot course by sextant again because of the likelihood that they will not have reliable communication systems in a war we are fighting. Uh, third is air dominance. We have not, since at least the Vietnam War, fought a war in which we did not have control of the air and therefore ease our ground and sea operations. That is probably already not true anymore. And lastly, time. You know, one of the nice things about fighting counterinsurgency wars, even though they're messy and difficult to, to see progress on, you have time to fix your mistakes. Right? We didn't have the Iraq war right in 2003. By 2006, 
not because of anything civilians did, but because of smart sergeants saying, if they can do it this way, why can't we do it this way? And coming up with good ideas that perked up to a much better strategy. We had time to react. I think it unlikely in the wars we will fight in the future that we will actually have the luxury of time to adapt. We, because of the proliferation of technology um, and a few other factors, time is actually not gonna remain on our side. So the degree of difficulty is going up. Um, the, the internal cost drivers of defense. You know, Rupert Murdoch mentioned last night about regulation. And in fact, we have the exact same problem internal to the defense enterprise. Regulation is choking off innovation. And let me just suggest, oh, five areas where it's especially difficult. First, base closures. We have at least 25% more bases than our military wants. And it's expensive to keep them safe, to keep them functional. Congress has been asked the last four budget cycles. Somebody correct me if I've got that wrong, but I think it's the last four budget cycles. Congress, uh, the Defense Department has pleaded with Congress to close bases, and they will not do so, right? So, so that's an easy thing we could fix, we're just not. Second, civilian employees. We have 800,000 civilian employees in the Department of Defense, and I assure you they will be the last people drawing salary in the Defense Department, long after soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines have been lined off the payroll. That's way too many, and the regulations that prevent you firing them are incredibly onerous. Third, compensation. We have the same dynamic about benefits internal to the defense establishment that the federal government has generally, which is that retirement and healthcare are eating us alive. So it is a myth that the American military uh, is underpaid. That was true for some time. It hasn't been true in at least 10 years. In fact, uh, military compensation, which is not just pay, but it's also benefit, compares favorably to civilian compensation at every grade in military service. Every grade. And on average, military compensation is $21,800 higher than civilian counterpart jobs. Um, and benefits are a bigger driver of that than pay are. For example, the cost of health care for folks in the military has not been raised since 1995. Um, pay and benefits have increased 90% since 2001. And the median uh, benefits package, pay and benefits package, so compensation overall, is 44,000, was in 2001, $44,200. It's now $81,600. And we spend 90% more on military personnel and benefits than we did, and we only have 3% more people in the military. Right? So this is an unsustainable growth. And it made some sense, actually it made a lot of sense, when you had two wars running simultaneously and had to recruit a larger force because we did not have ground forces large enough for the jobs we expected them to do. Um, but that is no longer the case. We are actually cutting personnel in the Army by quite a lot and in the other services 
as well. And yet we have not adjusted the compensation package to be any less of a magnet to people coming into the force. The uh, next big thing that needs fixing is the acquisition system. In 2013 alone, your government squandered $74 billion on projects that it started and then canceled because they weren't needed, or $74 billion in 2013. And this is part of what not having predictable long-term spending uh, incurs, the risk it incurs in the defense budget. Um, and lastly, there are the social justice issues. Uh, the um, more folks in Congress seem to be worried about the problem, albeit very real, problem of sexual harassment in the American military, then are worried about whether we are winning our wars. And we need to fix that. It doesn't mean that social issues, women in combat, what, whatever the issues are, it doesn't mean they're not valid. But our priority, the reason we have a military in the first place is to win our country's wars. And we have now drifted so far away from that as the center of gravity of our action that it actually needs urgent redress. Um, let me just give you one example taken from a former Hoover National Security Fellow who, who's a commander, uh, uh, who, who's a soldier. He is uh, in, he did a survey of all of the captains, lieutenants, and uh, sergeants in his division on what proportion of your time do you spend on getting your platoon, your company, ready for combat, and what do you spend on the administrative requirements that are put on you? Anybody care to take a guess? What proportion of time do they spend on war fighting preparation? Yeah, whoever said 20% had it on the nose. Well done. Okay, that's, that's wrong. Okay, just flat. That's a bad thing because we are not going to care um, about the other issues if our military doesn't win our wars. Um, and one last thing we should be worried about, which is we place big bets, right? A carrier-based navy whole lot of money on new manned aviation. And we don't spend enough time worrying about whether we have placed our big bets wrongly. And, and as some of you know, I, uh, I wrote a book about the transition from British to American dominance in the international order. And the American version of the story is Theodore Roosevelt, this great navy, we burst on the scene and elbow the British aside. But there is at least one alternative explanation that has nothing to do with us, which is that the British placed a very big bet that the only military forces they really needed to be dominant in were sea power, because there was no reliable transportation by ground. So if you dominate the seas, you dominate everybody else's ability to get anywhere and do anything. And with the advent of railroads, that ceases to be true. It opens up Russia being able to send troops to Afghanistan. It drives the British to such desperation that they actually make a defense alliance with the Japanese because they are hoping the Japanese will send troops to defend India, which, as you know, never happens. So uh, my plea to you in closing 
is that we actually need to relearn the practice of strategy. It's not some dark art. It's actually really simple. And I'm going to give you five quick experts on this subject. The first, Hoover's own Jim Mattis, whose definition of strategy is make choices that leave the fewest big regrets. Right? You're going to be wrong about a lot of things. You can't anticipate a lot of things. But spend your time and effort in the defense enterprise thinking about what would be catastrophic if we get it wrong. I will give you one example. It is quite fashionable in the United States to suggest that nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence are passe, right, of another age. About the only place in the world in which nuclear weapons are unfashionable is in the West. They're quite fashionable in Russia. They're quite fashionable in Iran. They're quite fashionable in North Korea. Um, we need to return ourselves to, to worrying about the fact that we are accruing risks that are not visible and that we are not prioritizing. The second uh, person who's great on strategy, Sir Lawrence Friedman, wrote a book this big, and let me summarize it for you, <laughs> which is that uh, strategy is the creation of power. It is how you use the means available to you to make yourself stronger than you were before. Right? That's the creative intelligence that Americans tend to be so good at. Uh, third example, uh, Colin Gray, um, who says that makes it even simpler, right? That strategy is about connecting political objectives to available means. That's all you have to do right. Um, but it requires that political leaders set objectives and that we resource those objectives. And President Obama won't acknowledge political end states that we actually need to achieve. And President Bush didn't resource them anywhere near the level that they would need to have accomplished. Uh, fourth, on, on your strategy primer, Clausewitz, who's on war, uh, you know, isn't read in Germany anymore, but it's read in the American military religiously. And what he says is that in warfare, Everything is simple, but the simple is extremely difficult. And that's actually what we're facing. That is our problem with the defense enterprise, right? None of the things that I suggested to you are out of whack, are unfixable, right? They're boring. They're clear. A good accountant could fix this. What we are lacking is the political strength to do it. And we really, really need to. We are not doing the difficult things. We're only doing the easy things, right? Pinprick strikes from out of an area that are having no effect on the battle over ISIS. Um, moreover, this has a moral component. We are putting military troops in harm's way um, without intending to win our wars. That's a terrible thing, and it's corrosive to us as a society. Um, and, and lastly, I'm going to conclude with one of the great American strategists. OK, it's not coming up for me, the third slide, guys. I'm going to conclude with one of the great American strategists, uh, Groucho Marx, <laughs> who said that, uh, that in politics, authenticity is the thing. Once you can fake that, everything else is easy. <laughs> and, I, I really, like, that sums it up for me. We're not even faking it well. Everybody knows we're not serious. 
And until we actually get an agreement on entitlement reform that shows that we are governable as a society and serious about solving our problems, we are actually going to be at risk. And entitlement's decision is the canary in the coal mine. And um, this isn't going to happen with our current congressional leadership. This is going to require presidential leadership. And so my plea to all of you is that you encourage whatever candidate you support to not just explain to you what they are going to do about defense spending, but to explain to you how they are going to get our defense enterprise on solid and sustainable footing again, because it really matters, and our margin of error has gotten very slim in the last 15 years. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.